Andrea, thank you so much. I have to just say I'm so uh, overwhelmed by the way God works where he will, uh, he'll put in, um, he has in his heart something he wants to see and then he puts it in the heart of one of his servants and it's a vision that they see and, and as a result of what they see, not always just clear, but they know the next steps of what they're moving towards. God makes it happen, and I just I think of that hope center and and the the vision. I think primarily first in Jill's heart, and then with Brian as they came around that and and, and took that on as leadership, and then with others in helping. Um, that hope center was birthed because it was I believe in the heart of God, and it's helping so many people, and so we're grateful for that, and so thankful. And I know Brian and Jill, if you're watching, we love you and thank you for your ministry and the way that you help. Um, I, I really believe it's important as we. Continuing this series to think about what's in our heart and what's in the heart of God. It's, it's an important thing. I was uh, four years old. I was lost. And I was terrified. I can remember this like one of my first memories. I had a few memories, but this was one of those that stood out. And I was in a neighborhood grocery super value store in Crystal. And it was all of maybe five aisles. I remember turning around, one not seeing my mom, and turning around another and not seeing my mom. And as a result of that, I knew it was in my heart. My heart was filled with fear. My heart was filled with a sense of lack. My heart felt lost. And, you know, all those little emotions and big emotions in the heart of a child. Four, lost, and, and just terrified. What I didn't know was what was in the heart of my mom. And I was reading some mother's quotes as I was thinking about this Mother's Day message and specifically as we continue in this journey through the wilderness with Moses. And I didn't know that this was in the heart of my mom. Being a mother isn't always easy. The sleepless nights, the constant worry, the endless piles of washing. But no matter how hard it feels, I will always show up. For my children. I will always try my best. Because from the very first moment I held them in my arms, I knew my job was to protect and love them with all my might. I was four, I was lost, and I was terrified, but I didn't know what was in my mom's heart. As another writes, as a mama, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I forget things. I lose my cool. And some days I go a little crazy. But it's okay. Because in the end, no one could ever love my child the way I do. See, I knew it was in my heart. I was four. I was lost. I was terrified. But I, I didn't really know what was in the heart of my mom. Now this says, I will always delight in my children's existence. I will be the one who thinks the sun rises and sets on them and loves them unconditionally forever and always I just didn't know what was in the heart of my mom. I knew it was in mine. I was four. I was lost. And I was terrified. Agatha Christie writes, and I love this. A mother's love for her child is like nothing else in the world. It knows no law, no pity. It dares all things and crushes down remorselessly. All that stands in its path. That path of love that's in the heart of a mom for a child. See, on this earth, we know really nothing greater than a mother's love for their child. 
But what I want you to really wrestle with, and which is the wrestle of our our journey in, in our life, which at times has wilderness aspects to it, when we come into lack, we are for or lost, we're terrified, is that in all of heaven, God is trying to tell us again and again, there is no greater love that he has for you, his child. There's nothing like it. Isaiah, at one point in the journey of the people of Israel, he writes these words in Isaiah chapter 49, 14 through verse 16. And uh, he says, my people say, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And at this point in their journey, they have been rebellious. They've done things that um, would cause any parent to feel shame. He says, they've said this, that they're forsaken, they're lost, they're forgotten. Because that's what's in their heart. And he goes, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for this child she has born? But even if that were possible, that happens humanly sometimes and we don't get it. But he says, I would not forget you. See, I've I've engraved you, your name on the palm of my hands, always before me, in my mind, is your fear and lack. It's found in Isaiah 49. KMP, don't look for that trans. That's Kevin Meyer paraphrase. And I did do the Hebrew to work on it. So this is a pretty, pretty good paraphrase. But I just want to share with you that as we get into this story, this is the lesson that God is trying to teach us all throughout it. As we read this next leg of the journey, I want you to think about your life as a journey and you are on a particular leg right now. You're at a particular aspect at a particular time. And as you go through each one, there will be tests because what God is seeking to test is what's in your heart and what comes out of your heart will either match up with God's heart or or not. They, at this point in their journey, it's just, you know, we started with, with Moses when he was born, and, and now he's 80, so we've been traveling since fall of this year to this point where we went through and saw God work marvelously, how he worked for his, for his children and the plagues, and also made it very clear that his glory would stand against anyone who would stand against him. And, and we see that eventually as they are birthed, in a sense, through the, the kind of breaking of the water of the Red Sea, and they're born into this wilderness journey, and so as children in a sense. They're four and at times they're lost and they're terrified. That's the picture you got to keep in mind because when God comes to them in these occasions so often it's not that he's angry. He's just trying to teach them what's in his heart for them and he's trying to teach you and me as he was them as well who you are in him and what you mean to him. You are his child. Don't let any experience ever cause you to think differently. You are his son. You are his daughter. It's all a matter of whether you want to recognize and live in the humility of that kind of trust. They have a first test that comes. The first test, there is a lack of water. They're not even three days along in the journey. And what happens is they don't have water. They cry out and complain. And Moses does what I would call he, he he has a pattern of response he's learned over the last 40 years that have become ingrained in him. It says that he turned to the Lord. He cried out to him, brought the matter before the Lord. He listened, and the Lord then showed him. It's the actual word, Torah, showed Torah, Torah him. It's 
a piece of wood and he threw it in and it became sweet. And then God says this, here's the pattern I want for you. In, in 1526, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and obey it and do what is right, then I will make you, I will not make you suffer the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. But for your, for your blessing and what I want to do is you trust me and follow me. I want to reveal myself throughout this entire journey as your healer. They saw him as their warrior, the one who fights for them. When they went through the Red Sea, they saw him as their shepherd, the one who leads them. And they saw him as their king, the one who rules over all forever. Now, God said, through your journey, my journey, he's going to heal those attitudes that reveal mindsets of, of, of a slave and a victim that, that cause us to think that our God is a tyrant when he's like a mom who loves you and he knows what's in your heart right now. Well, the second test comes up. It's lack of food. They're about one month into their journey. And he says, if the first way to pass the test, that first test that came up, lack of water, was to turn to God, listen to God, and follow and be obedient to God, and you'll live in blessing. The second test, he says, here's how you pass it. This is today's scripture. And so that's what we're going to read. We're going to see how he says where to pass it. So Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. It says, then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of sin. And I just want to mention to you that sin is not the word we think of sin. It's, it's really a shortened form of Sinai because it was between Elam and Mount Sinai. So it's that wilderness of Sinai area. They, they often have different names, but that was what this was called. Kind of a shortened form. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month and the month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. And there too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. I mean, you gotta think about it. They're a lot like, like kids. You, you know, you, you know, you ask them to clean up their room or to clean up their toys. It's part of, you know, work before you play and all those kind of, and they complain. It's just part of what it is to be a child. You don't understand, but God was going to teach them his whole desire. His destiny wasn't just to get them to the promised land, but it was to get the promised land into their heart is to build this kind of character like he is trying to do with you and me. But we, we just like, we, we, we complain. Citizens complain against political leaders. People complain against their bosses. Church people complain against their leaders. They say, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. I mean, that is a pretty pessimistic look of all that they have just seen. You know, when you start complaining and start saying things, if only, if only, be really alerted. That's, those are words that should tip off your heart that your attitude is is linked to a belief that's not true about God. And when you think about it, um, when you start talking about the good old days, be careful because that attitude sometimes can um, can tip off the fact that you're not looking at those good old days the way they really were. Because honestly, some of you actually washed dishes when you were little kids, Right? And you complained and moaned about that. And some of you, if you remember, held phones that had a cord and it was only maybe a foot or two long. And when you were trying to talk to someone you wanted to talk to, especially if you're a teenager, it's kind of like it's the only place and you wanted everybody out of the room. Now, those were the good old days. 
Some of you remember the annoying sound that your computer made when it was connecting to the internet. I wish I could make that noise. And some of you here that are listening went through World War II and knew all the deprivation and fear and everything around that. In fact, did you know that for some of you back in 1960, the mortality rates were about 26 per thousand born? Compared to today, in this time, 5%. Be honest, it's not necessarily always a lot of good in those old times. And, and so they're complaining. And it says, then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need that day. I will test them in this to see whether they are not, they whether or not they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. What's interesting in this passage of Scripture right here, God's just speaking to Moses, because, again, Moses must have done the pattern. He turned to God, heard the need, came before the Lord, conversed about it. Now God says, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to show you, but I want to let you know that this is a test. It's going to be a two-part test. One of them is going to be about the food they're going to eat, the bread, and the other is going to be about the meat that I'm going to give them. And, and, and there's going to be a, a test about dependence, and there's going to be a test about rest. And so he's talking to Moses here. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, oh, I'm, let me go back. Um, is that right? Yeah, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, by evening you will receive um, what the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your complaints, which are not against him, uh, against, really, um, which are against him and not against us. And what I want you to just catch from that is God hears your every complaint. He hears the one you make as you're standing there about the president, the governor, the mayor, the company you work for, the executives who run it, the boss that you report to, he hears every complaint. <laughs> Don't he, he hears that of, that you have against your spouse or your kids or your parents or your crazy uncle and kooky cousin. He hears every complaint you make about your pastor, me. Now, I understand, um, I should just mention for all those of you who are watching by live stream, our church never complains about me or our staff or elders or anything like that, so... I'm really speaking just to you right now if you're live streaming from somewhere else. But anyway, I love the response of Moses. Your complaints really aren't against us, he says. They're really against God. Because all we're doing is following his directions. When the cloud goes up, we just follow it. and it stops, we stop. What have we done, he continues, that you should complain about us? Then Moses added, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning. For he has heard all your complaints against him. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord and not against us. I want you to think for a second. Consider this. What if the person you are angry with or you're complaining about is merely an instrument of God to bring about change in you and your character? I'm not saying that the person is doing everything right and there may be legitimate things that you need to deal with, not complain about, not grumble about, not mumble about, not whine about. Because that puts you in a victim place. You have to say, God, how can I take action? What am I supposed to do? But if, you're, if there isn't anything you're supposed to do, maybe God is calling you to turn to him and to stop and to say, God, in this situation right now, what is it that you're seeking to do in me? 
that I'm kind of throwing out here as blame towards others. What if this trial is not really just an obstruction, although it may be, what if it's just an opportunity for God to do something great in your life, to provide in such a way that afterwards you'll have a a story to tell, just like what's written here. It goes on in Exodus chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Announce to the entire community of Israel, Present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining and has, and as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. There they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. I think it's interesting. He uses the idea of the word know. This is not about information. He's not saying, then you have all kinds of information you'll know about how God is, and you could write a theological book about him and all the rest. This is not about information. This is about intimacy. That's what this journey is that you are on. It's about intimacy with a God who really is who he says he is. And has that kind of love in your heart, in his heart for you. And it's about this God knowing you and what's really in your heart and your willingness to get honest about it and then turn to him and say, here's what I, here's what I got going on, God. What am I supposed to do? How are you supposed to meet it? And you'll know God in that way. And then it says that evening, vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. So before they had manna, they have this quail. And it's interesting because people go, well, how did that happen? And what I want you to understand is there are migratory birds that would be from northern Africa and they would fly just the way we have migration patterns of birds and they would land along the way all through the Mediterranean. They'd go all the way to southern Europe. And so as they would be flying, they would land and they would be tired. There are, there are actual, um, Pictures of antiqu- in antiquity on, on wall paintings that Egyptians had where they would show them with a net throwing it over a bush and, and catching all kinds of quail. There are stories and it's kind of known because of these birds would fly and they had hardly any strength to move that you could actually catch them with your hand. God has this whole f- group of birds fly in, wiped out, and they have their evening meal. And then it says in the next morning, now he provides manna. Around the camp was wet with dew. And when the dew evaporated, a flaky substance, as fine as the frost, blanketed the ground. And the Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And I just should just stop there and just tell you that idea of manna is the words, what is it? We still don't know to this day. People try and come up with natural ways. This is just one that is, is beyond what people know from a natural standpoint. This was a supernatural provision of God in, in every way. Not that all the other things that we've seen in the plagues aren't supernatural because the supernaturalness of them is usually the timing and, and the extent and when they come. So when quail come just at the right time, right after God says it, that's a supernatural move of God, even though he's using natural means. But this one calls all scholars are just going, what is it? And Moses told them, it is the f- food the Lord has given you to eat. There are, uh, these are the Lord's instructions. Now this is the test. 
It's when you have turned to God and when you've listened to him and then he kind of shows you, Torahs you what to do. He then expects you to follow what he says. Not kind of what he says, but exactly what he says. And he says, so he goes, here's the food that's given. Here's my little Lord's instructions. And again, that word is Torah. Here it is. I'm going to show you what to do. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. And some gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. And those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. And those who gathered only a little had enough. And here's here's the line you, you need to understand. Each family had just what it needed. You get the idea in that? The idea in those verses are God met their need to exactly what they needed, each one. Some had more, some had different needs, and God met that. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen. Here's the test. They didn't follow what he said. And and they kept some of it until morning. But by then it was full of maggots, which is the word really, it spoiled, it went rotten. And had a terrible smell. And Moses, it doesn't say God here, but Moses was very angry with them. He was disappointed. Because when God speaks to us, which I think again is interesting, he says, follow and obey the instruction, the Torah. And that's not just the written word. We have this written word. It's The Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what it referred to. They were actual laws, written word. But the word Torah is used in an interesting way, very similar to what we have even in the New Testament. The Torah is used here, and if you read Jewish scholars or others, they'll say it's not just a dry thing. It's the living word of God speaking to your heart. And there's this idea that this is the Logos, the word of God. It's the one that tells us all what we're to do. It explains to us exactly who the Father is. And we need nothing more. We don't need any other revelation. But there is also a, a what they call a rhema, which is a Greek word, a word that is a living word. That when you are walking with God, at times you pray, he will, with his word, maybe through your word, cause that word to be like a rhema word that comes alive to you for what he wants you to do. It could be as you're walking, a verse comes to mind. Or it could be that God points out something. But he says, here's the, here's the test. Will you turn to me? Will you listen? And when I Torah you, when I rhema you, what I'm calling you to do, will you do it? Because I want to reveal to you a new name. I want you to experience in this time of lack a new name. I was four. I was lost. And I was terrified. But when my mom came around the corner and saw me and saw my tears and I ran to her, she ran to me. And she hugged me. I saw in her eyes something I hadn't seen before. I saw to a degree what was in a mother's heart. And God is calling you right now. He wants you to get a a new understanding and to believe trust in a new way. When you look into his eyes, he has a mother's heart. He will never, ever forget you or forsake you. So then he says, here's what I want you to do. It's a two-part test. Remember I said that? The first part was just daily dependence. 
There are opportunities to prove through faith with your, your going through right now, opportunities for you to build and to express your faith from the fear maybe you have on your heart, which God doesn't come down on you, but to replace it with a trust in a God who will provide it for you. And so the very first test is just this daily dependence. Will you walk in daily dependence on him? And so he gives them manna. And the whole idea with the manna was to provide for them every day, every day, every day. And God said, here's how I want you to do it. I want you to go out and get it. I don't want you to save it to the next day. I just want you to have it every day. I want you to live on this fresh understanding of who I am in your life. I don't want you living on things happened 15, 20 years ago. It's wonderful to remember what God did. But the reason you remember what God did 15, 20 years ago. The reason you have stories is to build faith. But it's not the faith you live on today. The faith you live on today is the manna that God provides today. And if you try to and you live on the stuff from the time past and you don't move on and your faith isn't fresh, it spoils, it gets rotten. People get legalistic. They begin to start losing the fact that God has new models in order to do new mission. And the problem that, that happens in our hearts, why, why God wants us to daily depend on him and have this fresh encounter with him every day, is because we need his newness in every moment of our journey because we will come against things that are more than we can handle. And anybody who knows it, when you start trying to drive the car yourself, you kind of eventually go, man, Jesus, again, I need to depend on you. You drive this thing. We live with what God is rooting out what he's rooting out in your heart right now is a mindset of a victim. It's the slave mentality that he was rooting out of their heart. What does it mean for us? It means we have this desire to, to either hoard because we live with a mindset of scarcity. Oh, I better take a lot more. I better get a whole lot. I, and the other side of it is I'm going to try and grab a bunch that I had because I'm too insecure to believe that God will provide today. I remember one time my wife asked me, she said, Kevin, why do you eat so fast? And I always, I had to think about it for a second, and I still do eat fast, and um, and I thought about it, and I remember, it was because I was the youngest, you know, here was my father, and then my brother a few years older than me, and, and when we, we, we'd have pizza on a Friday night, it was a big deal, we'd get pizza to the family, uh, my mom was so wonderful, because she'd only take a couple pieces, but my, my dad and my brother, they would just, and they were older, they could devour it down. So I would just try and hoard. I, I, I had developed in me, my mind as a kid, a scarcity kind of mindset that when pizza's around, you better eat as much as you can. So if I'm with you at, a, at some kind of an event, make sure you get your pizza. We live with a scarcity mindset. And God doesn't want us to live that way. The kingdom of God is about generosity. It's about a God who will provide for you. He will not leave you without He may test your strength to its very end, but he calls you to daily depend on him. So the word of God says, so the people of Israel did what they were told, and some gathered a lot, some only a little, but when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. If you're at home right now, and if you've got people around you, I love you, say it with me. Everyone had just enough. Yeah, everyone had just enough. The word of God says those who gathered a lot had nothing left over and, and those who gathered a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. So say it with me. You will have just what you need. I will have just what I need. Because you are not a slave who has to hoard, who lives with a victim scarcity mindset. You are a son and a daughter. You're a child 
of the king who has a heart of a mother. Whether you're for and you're lost and you're terrified, just loves you deeply and wants you to learn how to depend every day on him. Exodus chapter 16, verses 21 through 32. I'm not going to read all that. I'm going to kind of just um, share with you this second test. The second part of the test was moving from daily dependence to restful trust. And if you read that passage of scripture, it's really interesting. He basically says, every day I want you to grab the manna and get the quail. But on the day before the Sabbath, I want you to do just the opposite of what I've been telling you to do. I want you to actually grab twice as much. And then I want you to keep it. And I think in their hearts, they're going, now you got, this is craziness. We, some of the people grab more than they should have and it's spoiled. We're not going to do it. But God says, here's what I want you to do. Grab twice as much. I want you to bake it. And he's referring here to the manna when he says bake it. Because it tasted like a pastry. Think of the best almond croissant you've ever tasted or chocolate almond croissant you've ever tasted. God's saying, take enough for the Sabbath and bake it so you can get up and enjoy a wonderful honey-flavored croissant with your coffee. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to rest the whole day. I just want you to have thoughts of how much I love you. I want you just to fill your heart with the fact that no matter what's going on in your own life, because, you know, they had problems in their marriages. They had other difficulties. He said, I want you to know that you don't have to live with the scarcity mindset, but you can also live with this sense of my grace, because in the kingdom of God is grace, which means his power to meet any need that comes before you. God wants you to rest. Rest in the promise that God will provide. And he says, then boil it. He's referring here to the quail. So that you take that and you boil it for that second day. Yet some people still went out on that seventh day. And what I want you to understand, the point here isn't that God was asking them to refrain from gathering. I mean, it sounds like, you know, don't gather. The point is that God wouldn't be supplying. And that's a little bit different. Because he's teaching them something about himself. Rest is a part of the very nature of God. He created for six days and he rested, set the whole thing up on that seventh day and it just ran. It's woven into the very very nature of creation. We rest because God rests. We don't need to kind of run and nervously try and make it happen. We can actually take time and set aside time and have a Sabbath rest in our hearts. And I, I tell you, it's important to try and do that on a regular basis. That's what even Sunday, as weird as this is right now, it is an important time. Because God is faithful to his people and you can rest. Remember in this journey, it's all about going through the wilderness. It's all about God creating in you a new understanding of who he is. He did that and he made this really clear at a point in history. When he gave us Jesus. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus explained exactly the, the heart of God for you. It says here in John six thirty two through 35. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. You had that wrong. You're looking at the wrong person. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. And they're going, well, what is The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. That's the kind of bread we want. And I love Jesus' reply. I'm the bread. If you want to live in life, begin to develop a relationship with me. If you're in a place and you're listening and you do not know this Jesus, you've never just opened your heart and recognized your need of him and said, I really need you. I want to begin to daily, like I would eat bread, I want to begin to start to know you. I want to start to ingest and digest and let you become and your truths become a part of my life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In those moments... You can rest and trust because I am dependable daily. I'd love for you to hear a story. I'd love for you to hear a story. Um, it was given to me this week, and then I said, would you record it? So um, let me just tell you, there was, there's two people in our church, Scott and Alyssa Randall, and I remember meeting them a number of years back, and just after I met them, both of them are engineers. They were engineer jobs at Honeywell at the time, and they gave up their job to go over to Turkey to be missionaries. And I'm thinking, that's craziness. But they trusted in the dependency of God, and they rested in him even through that process. And let me just have her share that story. I became a mom to my twins, Natalie and Sophia, almost 10 years ago. We were living in Istanbul, Turkey. It was 9 p.m. I was laying in bed reading a book, and my water broke, eight and a half weeks early. After calling my parents and our best friends in Turkey to spread the word and pray, we grabbed our bags and headed to the hospital by taxi. We arrived to the emergency room. I was seated in a wheelchair, and we checked in. <coughs> the orderly pushed the elevator button and took me down to the room where we were to wait for my to doctor. The other. As I was settling into bed, Scott turned to me and asked, Did you see the name of the guy that wheeled you in here? Nope. I wasn't really concerned about that. He said, it was Isa Kuzuju. When translated into English, Isa means Jesus, which is not a common name in the Muslim world. And Kuzuju means something like keeper of the lambs. So Jesus, keeper of the lambs, had just wheeled me into my room. God wanted me to know that he was with me. And a peace that surpasses all understanding came over me. So when my doctor came in, and said that there was only one NICU bed open at that hospital on the Asian side, and we would have to be transported to the European side, I was at peace. Natalie and Sophia were born naturally six and a half hours after my water broke. They were in the NICU exactly one month, and for 28 nights, I slept on the urgency care waiting room floor. But because of my encounter with Jesus the Good Shepherd, I knew I lacked nothing. He restored my soul even when I, had, I knew I had nothing left to give. I feared no evil because he was with me. Each Mother's Day, and really every day, Natalie and Sophia are a reminder of the goodness and love of God, a God who sees me. I, I'm so grateful, um, so grateful for Alyssa and for that story. That's her own personal story of how God worked, and it was merely because she just said Jesus and, and turned and looked to Jesus in that time and, and God spoke to her. And so I just, as you continue to think about this, I, if you're in a place and you are feeling that sense of, of fear or terror or lostness or isolation or whatever it may be, I, I tell you the best advice I could give you is when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I mean, just calls you to call out to him. All you have to do is whisper his name.
whisper his name whisper his name whisper his name and he will answer you whisper his name whisper his name whisper his name and he will answer you call out his name call out his name call out his name and he will come to you call out his name call out his name call out his name
I just um, I just pray that if that's what you need, that God would just be working in your heart. I just want you to be with me just a, a few minutes more because what Moses said next, and I'm just going to read these verses. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Fill a two-quart container with manna to preserve it for your descendants. Then later generations will be able to see the food I gave you in the wilderness when I set you free from Egypt. He goes on and says some other things, but I just want you to listen to this. What God does in our time of need and when he meets us is to allow for us to create a story and to share that story and to tell them to our kids and to our kids' kids, to the children's 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 descendants. It's meant to tell with people in your neighborhood. It's meant to tell um, people that you work with. God wants you to use those times to just boast about how incredible your God is. He doesn't say pack it up and put it away and store it somewhere. He really is saying use it as a, a way of sharing who God is to others. And so I, I want you to do one thing this week. Is, you know, I had some other practical things. I just want you to do one thing this week. And that's what I call a story starter. Story starters sometimes can be just smiles. Most people, when you think about smiling, you think about smiling, it's something you do when you feel like it. It's in response to something. It's reflexive. You see a kid, you see something that makes you laugh, and you smile, and, and it puts your, kind of the smile on your face. And, and people know why you're smiling. But you know what? Smile doesn't have to be reflexive. Our smile can be something that we intentionally do because we know a story. We know of a God who, when we were lost and terrified, had met us. Even And again, not 30 years ago, this last week, maybe that morning. And I just want you to intentionally begin to live with the smile because it actually will sometimes start a story. And more than that, it will, it will, it will, change the atmosphere around you, your smile is evidence of a God who loves you and provides for you daily and allows for you to rest. So would you this week, I'm going to ask you every day, think about intentionally smiling. And I'm going to give you one last story of someone who did it really well. I had another story I want to show you. It's about a guy with a great smile, just a great smile. And I think his smile might play a pretty big part in his optimism and in his success. Watch this. Here at Port Berry Elementary in Port Berry, Louisiana, we found the most contagious smile in Cajun country. It belongs to elementary school principal Gabe Saunier, and it comes so naturally, it's like his face has no other option. Can you even make a frown? I mean, that's your that's, that's the one you're gonna get. You can't. You're just incapable you, you, of it. it the, the smile just wants to break out. And that's that's just me. You know, that's just me, Mr. Hartman. That's just me. The guy clearly loves his job. I started in, in November. He's new to the principal position, but he's been working at the same school for more than 30 years. In fact, Mr. Sonier began his career in education just down the hall. Well, I really got y'all started. This was your office. This is our office right here. Office, in the most liberal sense of the word. This is a mop room. This is a mop room. Mr. Saunier's incredible journey from janitor to principal began in 1985, when then-principal Wesley Jones pulled him aside one day. And he said, I'd rather see you grading papers than pick him up. No one had ever believed in him that much. I took it to heart. 
So, at the age of 39, whenever he wasn't cleaning classrooms, he was studying in them, got his teaching degree, and shortly after, his first teaching job. Then came the masters. <laughs> it is something. <laughs> it is something. And yet, despite all the degrees and the new job, Gabe Saunier hasn't forgotten where he came from. Believe it or not, he still cleans his own office. Obviously, you can take the janitor out of the mop room, but you can't take the work ethic out of the janitor. And there's a lesson in there for boys and girls and grown-ups everywhere. Very good. Don't let your situation that you're in now define what you're going to become later. I always tell them it's not where you start, it's how you finish. And Mr. Sonye isn't finished yet. Before we left, he confessed that he wouldn't mind being superintendent someday. I, I, I think I'd welcome him. Does the superintendent know this? No. <laughs> he said, it's not where you start, it's how you finish. And that's what an optimistic person says. He's... So I just want you to smile. Practice smiling this week intentionally. And you will experience joy. And you will express joy. And you will actually have opportunities probably to share a story from where your joy comes. You know what? God believes in you. I just ask you, do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Will you let him love you as who he is so that you can be who you really are in Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Bless your people in Christ's name. Amen.